it looked like a Terrence Malick, like Terrence Malick's Ferrari to me at yeah, first. Yeah. But then with the sound and I'm hearing like the roaring engines and everything, I'm like, all right, this, yeah, I, I know what this is going to be. It's going to be like, you know, an ode to engines, an ode to velocity. Yeah. You know, that's, yeah. that's Michael Mann. If it was Terrence Malick, you'd never even see a car, you know, mm-hmm. Terrence Malick's Ferrari. Like you'd see like fragments of a car, but you'd never actually see a car like <laughs> driving anywhere. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh, tell you the truth, this guy's starting to get on my It's hot. It's hot out there. Let's we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hey everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Gauntlet. My name is Ryan Saunders, and with me tonight, as always, are Eric Marsh and Andrew Stasulis. The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of us picks a theme for the week, and then the other two have to pick films that react to that theme, perhaps directly addressing the topic or bucking up against it a little bit or putting it in the blender and seeing what uh, what it tastes like after it's been blended up a bit. And I think we actually have a little bit of that this week in a very fun and appealing way. I, I chose the topic this week, and in many respects, I didn't know what to expect in the same sense as I didn't know exactly where the prompt even came from. I think I just was happening across a few posters for some Eastern European fairy tale films that were making me laugh, and I feel like there's hundreds of those. I joked with Marsh offline, he said he felt like he had like an aneurysm when he was looking at the posters of Eastern European fairy tales, because there's just an endless amount. There's thousands of yeah. them. And I guess, yeah, I, I was looking at those, and I thought, oh, fairy tales, that's a funny angle. You know, we've, we've dealt with reality and unreality in various different respects. We've dabbled a little bit in fantasy, but really not very much. And... It is something that's a cursory interest of mine, a guilty pleasure. I like fantasy video games. I'd like to think I could give fantasy novels a shot. They never really work out when I make an effort. And a buddy of mine tried to do The Wheel of Time, and it kind of was a start and stop, and then eventually just a full stop, because it was a little too stupid for us. But, you know, it's an aesthetic that I find fun. And I know that it's an aesthetic that is, like, not necessarily both of your wavelengths very much, uh, in certain respects, you know? And so I thought, oh, it would be fun. Let's challenge a little bit. I won't put any, you know, I'm not going to demand it. I'm not going to demand Eastern European fairy tales. That could be its own topic for for all (laughs) intents and purposes. But I thought, fairy tales, why not? What are both of your interpretations? And without, you know, I don't want to bury the lead here, but, you know, I think it's it's a nice mix because we have something that's a bit more traditional in what someone would interpret as some magical folklore type fairy tale film. And then we have another that is, again, in the blender. We were kind of looking at it through a modern perspective and does ultimately then get to the heart of the perverse nature of fairy tales in many respects. So I think we have a lot to talk about. I'll stop talking about why I bothered to choose them and instead throw it over to you two to tell me about the films themselves. So Andy, yours was the earlier of the two films. What did you select? I think that when I was 
conceiving of, you know, um, my potential picks, uh, I, I had an inkling. I, I just, I had a, a, a vision, a premonition, if you will, that, you know, Marsh was, was gonna, you know, throw something in the blender with one of his picks. <laughs> so I kind of, I kind of suspected that. So I, I sort of set my sights on something that I think was, to your way of explaining it, yeah, a little bit more traditional, a little bit more on the nose. Um, but I wanted to pick one that that you know I was going to have fun with. Um, and um, when I then consulted with Marsh and saw his shortlist, uh, my suspicions were were confirmed. So it made my decision <laughs> that much uh, easier for me, you know. And when you say fairy tale, you know, you, you had left it kind of open to us. So I should sort of explain a little bit of my, I think, justification. You know, I was sort of trying to, to differentiate, you know, legends and, and folk tales from uh, like myths. And I guess specifically like very well established, like Greek mythology or Norse mythology. I tried to go, though there are fantastic elements in a lot of myths i try to lean much more heavily into sort of fantastical tales with fantastic creatures and um you know things that were like purely rooted in the 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 lack of the real i guess you could put it that way you know clearly things from our imagination um i guess all creative acts are from the imagination but but i i digress so um, yeah, you know, I, I wanted some mystical creatures. I wanted, you know, swashbuckling. I wanted princesses. I wanted, you know, brave heroes facing dragons and that sort of thing. And that's what I brought. I selected a film from 1958, The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, directed by Nathan H. Duran, I think is his name. Um, but really, this is a Ray Harryhausen film. Uh, it is his first color film, um, you know, handling all the, the special effects and the, the creature effects. And it is quite a show. Um, for those who don't know, this is a film that um, adapts certain elements of the tales of Sinbad the Sailor, who is this sort of mythical folk hero from Middle Eastern culture uh, slash, you know, the various versions of, you know, A Thousand One Arabian Nights. I think that's where the character of Sinbad first originated. But, you know, like many other folk heroes and legends and folk tales, uh, it takes on a lot of different sort of forms over the years, depending on who has their hands on the material. This film follows Sinbad the sailor uh, as he sort of accidentally kind of gets himself involved with a very uh, untrustworthy wizard who has a, a magic lamp. And, and when they meet him, he's, he's desperately being chased 
by a, a a huge cyclops, this 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 huge creature. I mean, right out of the gate. I mean, this is like the first five minutes of the movie. We get our first big Ray Harryhausen stop motion creature, this massive cyclops. Uh, that even if you haven't seen the film, I'm sure you've seen clips of over the years. Iconic. You know? It is an iconic creature, and there's several of them in this film. So uh, Sinbad is on his way back to Baghdad with his soon-to-be bride, this this princess uh, Parisa of a sort of, I guess, neighboring caliphate. And and the, the wedding between Sinbad and Princess Parisa is supposed to sort of like create great peace between these two uh, kingdoms. However, this wizard who I mentioned, this magician, Sokura, uh, really wants this magic lamp, and uh, he loses it, you know, in this this initial sort of, you know, uh, chase with the, the Cyclops, and he sort of, like, tries to convince Sinbad to, to help him go back and get this lamp, but, you know, Sinbad's basically like, look, dude, I'm getting married, I got my bride here, you know, we got this stuff we're, we're working on with this, this other caliphate, it's really important shit, but Sakura will not be deterred. So through very nefarious practices, which we will get into in greater detail later, he sort of magically blackmails uh, Sinbad into helping him go back to this island of, of huge, monstrous creatures to get this magic lamp, which contains a genie. Uh, and and there, I'm sure you can imagine, folks, it is, you know, your your typical hero's journey. You know, we're in Joseph Campbell territory. I mean, where do you think he got that shit, right? From these kinds of stories, these kinds of tales. So Sinbad puts together an expedition with Sakura and a few other people, and they head back to, to get the lamp and rescue the princess, save the day, all that good stuff. Like I said, we're going to get into the specifics of it all because that's really where I think the fun of this movie lies. But yeah, you know, that is, um, to me, it's, you know, this was a, um, a childhood classic. I had this movie on VHS and, and it, it blew my mind when I was 10 years old. I just, I loved the stop motion creatures. I loved the magic of it all. And, and I had subsequently gone on to to really understand like how influential uh, this film is I think particularly among Ray Harryhausen's work and, and certainly his 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 larger you know work as a special effects you know mastermind is certainly left a, a huge imprint but I think this film particularly you know you can trace a lot of of uh, more contemporary sort of influences from from what you see here um, and yeah you know I think it's a it's a it's a really interesting film and no offense to Nathan Juren but you know he's not really much of a director but that's really why he was sort of selected for this. You know, I, I researched that um, Harryhausen, by this point, you know, he had so much, you know, the producers understood, like, the movie is about what Ray Harryhausen is going to do. So they, they had to explain to directors, I mean, it was almost like contractual, that if they were going to work 
with Ray Harryhausen, he was going to be the guy really calling the shots. But there was some strange thing with like the Hollywood unions and the guild at the time that like Harryhausen couldn't be credited as the director, even though he was really like the driving creative force behind almost all the technical decisions that were made throughout the film. So really, even though this movie is directed by Nathan Juran, we're going to be talking about Ray Harryhausen pretty much exclusively, I think, today. Um, yeah, uh, I, I could gush, but, you know, I think we're just going to have a lot of fun. It's a lot of laughs. It's goofy. It's It's got some bad acting in it, but but boy, it's, uh, it's quite the spectacle. Um, and that, yes, is... The seventh voyage of Sinbad. It's funny how in your intro, <laughs> and you mentioned, you know, like it's directed by some some guy named named Nathan. It, it reminds me of uh, a line in Dave Kerr's capsule for the film where he says, uh, "The human cast superfluous includes," and then <laughs> lists off all their names because just a bunch of made up people, no doubt yeah. about it. Bing Crosby's wife. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But Marsh, your film. Uh, your film has the, the stamp of a director on it, and it certainly has a unique cast who is not superfluous. So tell us a little bit about the film you selected. Yeah, well, uh, I guess I spared you because, you know, Freeway was on my short list, you know, so... Um, spared me? I love that movie. <laughs> I well, spared everyone. But, I haven't you know. seen it in years. Uh, I, I got actually really excited when I saw it on his short list. <laughs> I was like, I, I zeroed in on that one particularly. We've all seen Freeway. Yeah, um, we do. We all we know yeah, and love it. Yeah, yeah, we do certainly. Um, so the, that's a, you know put that's that funny. one on the gauntlet. Recommends, yeah. uh, I guess. Um, but yeah, you know, of course, I was looking for for something offbeat, I guess, and you know, it dwelled on me. There is a film that I'd been meaning to see for a long time, but it seemed kind of like sleazy and weird. So I was like, oh, I'll watch it. Well, you know, eventually. Um, and now was the time to, to, to pull this one out, you know, and, and give it a glance, uh, because, of course, I'm interested in general in the work of, of its creator. Um, the film is Some Call It Loving from 1973, written, directed and produced by James B. Harris. Uh, who was, for those who don't know, the producer of Stanley Kubrick's early work from The Killing to Paths of Glory and Lolita, uh, afterwards which, encouraged by Stanley, he struck out on his own as a director and, and made The Bedford Incident with Sidney Poitier, and a few years later uh, delivered this oddity, uh, independently funded and financed and distributed outside of the studio system. Um, all I really knew about this film was that it sort of had a, a sleeping beauty aspect to it. Uh, and that's really all I knew going in and that it was like maybe some kind of weird sexual thing. Um, and, and indeed it is, it is both of those things, right? So uh, the story itself was based on a short story by John Collier that Harris had discovered while working on Lolita, and he liked the story, but uh, wanted to give it a different spin, and he actually changed it completely in his rewriting of it to 
be a personal film that's essentially about the love life of James B. Harris, right? So uh, it's a very personal film. It's a very artistic film. Uh, I wrote down like even that it's like almost slow cinema. <laughs> At a certain point, the film casts a hypnotic spell and it follows uh, Robert Troy, played by Zalman King, who is a jazz musician who, at a local uh, amusement park or carnival, discovers uh, that there's this sleeping beauty and people are paying a dollar to, you know, kiss her. And it's it's all very awkward and weird. And he's completely taken uh, with it and her and buys her for $20,000 from the carnies. He brings her home to essentially a, a seaside castle or seaside mansion that he lives in uh, with uh, his, I guess you could call her his partner, Scarlet, played by Carol White, uh, and some other people who pop in and out of their house. But uh, how did a fucking describe this film? Well, like, it's, it's difficult <laughs> because the relationship that Robert Troy, and I guess everyone calls him Troy, so I'm going to call him Troy, yeah. even though that's technically his last name, whatever. I know that feeling. I, I mean, call, I call you, Marsh. you Marsh. I know, yeah. I know. <laughs> so Troy and Scarlett basically uh, have this insane relationship where they're constantly playing games uh, in this elaborate fantasy sort of role play thing they have going on that's no griet territory yeah, it's, yeah and again none of this is ever like actually explained which i think is one of the movie's strengths because again it is sort of like the whole thing's under this like gauzy weird spell and she basically is like having like lesbian lovers who are pretending to be their maid and he's pretending to be like uh, various things at various points. Anyway, he brings Sleeping Beauty home. Eventually, of course, she wakes up, and uh, what happens is, you know, the bulk of the film as he uh, sees this fantasy uh, come to life. I gotta look up the line. What does he say? He who awakes Sleeping Beauty is in danger of awakening himself, right? right? Uh, and that's, you know, sort of what this is exploring as then Troy uh, bops around in this, like, yeah, kind of like robe grier, almost psychosexual triangle, quadrangle. Uh, and yeah, I don't know. I'm going to need some help uh, from you guys. <laughs> oh, to, no, I to, wanted uh, your help. What the? <laughs> well, I mean, I've, I've got some insight, but it's it's still a, yeah, it's a difficult film to describe. Um, no kidding. It has a, yeah, it's, oh, God. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll bring Rosenbaum into it later. He'll be our, he'll be our guiding star mm, because oh he really liked it when he saw it, when it debuted at the director's fortnight at the 1973 Cannes Film Festival. The film was very well received in France. It did well and received raves in all the major papers and magazines. And when it opened in New York, it opened to uniform hostility. The American critics uh, hated it, every single one of them, except, of course, Jonathan Rosenbaum, who was pretending to be French at the time so and living in, in France. So, um, yeah, it was ripped on. Harris was called the chauvinist pig. Um, and, and all sorts of, you know, insults uh, were hurled at it. And in fact, Andy, because you brought up Jaglum earlier, uh, Pauline Kael said this was the worst film she'd seen since some Jaglum piece of shit a few years back. Uh, and that, uh, yeah, that she had a hard time sitting through it. Um, I did not. Uh, I quite liked it. 
and uh, and we'll get into that. But it, it definitely cast its spell on me. I do think it is a, a difficult film, both on purpose and maybe on accident. Um, but it's a strange film, and I think I, I come at it with the generosity of Rosenbaum in saying that it's it's certainly an unclassifiable film. It is uh, certainly in, in the context of American cinema, it's a film that is very out there, um, and I think is worth a look, especially if you, like me, love uh, the film Cop uh, with James Woods that Harris did, another film about an obsessive man uh, and, and how that ripples outwards. You I know? like Cop a lot. Yeah, yeah. Cop rocks um so anyway yeah we'll we'll get into it but uh that's some call it loving from 1973 thank you yes yeah i i watched that one late last night and kind of remember it as a nightmare i think i stopped taking notes halfway through because i got sucked into its haze and was just letting it all wash over me but that was absolutely by design you know, but yeah, thank you, thank thank you both for for this week, and I think that in many respects, this double feature does more broadly hit on what I feel like is not necessarily a discourse, but what people kind of talk about when they talk about fairy tales and about fairy tales in cinema and how they've been adapted and what they've turned into. Because you know, the the know it alls like to say, oh, you know, the grim fairy tales. It's not all. Uh, Twinkle Bell, you know, it's it's not all pretty. They're dark. They're grisly. Twinkle Bell. <laughs> what's her name? I can't remember. It's been many years. Tinker Bell. Tinker Bell. <laughs> Jeez. It shows how where I've been uh, in fairy tale land the past few years. But yeah, right. The, that's the angle people like to bring up. Like, oh, those those grim fairy tales. That was the that was rough shit. That stuff is yeah. dark. And how fairy tales have kind of become commercialized and have become this like you know pretty fairy dust comfort type of cinema. And of course, with Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, it's essentially a cartoon. It's very colorful. It's fantastical. It is treating a, a, another culture as extremely foreign to be a jumping off point to make something so fantastical and feel as though it takes place in another universe. And then your film, Marsh, you know, it, it it's dark. It's ugly. It's trying to explore something seedy and evil in the heart of of humanity, you know? And I think that fairy tales, the older ones, were also exploring similar territory sometimes, right? So both of these films, I feel, have a nice juxtaposition in terms of even though one's a modern adaptation and a remix of sorts is kind of getting at the heart of what certain ideas of a fairy tale are. And then Andy, your film scratched exactly what I was sort of envisioning in the sense of let's look at something that's a fantastical cartoon fairy tale. So I guess I don't, it's more of just an observation, but I like that these films kind of interact with the idea of fairy tales uh, in, in that way. Yeah, we sort of have one for the kids and one for the adults, and I don't mean <laughs> that pejoratively, you know, for the Harryhausen, right? It is a fantastical tale aimed at the widest audience possible to show off the sickest effects of the day. Yeah. Like, it set a, a standard for a reason, and it was hugely successful for a reason. And on the flip side, Harris is going like, you know, especially, you know, it's the 70s, right? We're, we're well into the age of mass media and entertainment and how actually, yeah, maybe all this stuff is 
is bad for us and especially the happy stuff ryan you know the <laughs> the forced yeah. happiness of certainly the american film industry and then turning that around you know and i think for harris that's what the film was all about he also used the film to interrogate himself you know and he said very explicitly that you know in the short story it's sort of like a joke it's like he wakes her up and she's like really obnoxious and annoying so he puts her back to sleep it's like a gag yeah and he was like what if she woke up and then the guy realized that actually like he's a piece of shit and everything is actually wrong with him you know like that's was his idea was to to turn it into like yeah this masochistic weirdo who feels He's taken his fantasy so far, he's now like, oh my God, like, this is awful. What have I done? Like, it's like when yeah. you get everything you've ever wanted and you feel just a complete emptiness <laughs> inside of you, you know, that's basically well, you know, kind of what's uh, going on. Yeah. My way of looking at it, in, in a sense, was because I watched uh, Sinbad first. I, I couldn't right. wait to watch it, as a matter of fact. I was just like, yeah, because I, I hadn't seen it <laughs> since I was a kid. So I was, I was like, pumped for it you know so i was like rolling off of that that hairy house and high and then i i i went into uh yeah <laughs> went into harris's movie and uh was very quickly like oh yowza you know like and and i'm not saying that it's like it's a bad movie but like just a very 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 different uh mindset you know and and then I was starting to, as I was like kind of like reflecting on just both films, I was sort of like, well, you know, they are both about princes, you know? Uh, and, and then I was like, well, I see what Harris is doing, right? Because he's basically, he's, he's got Sinbad, but, you know, uh, he's looking at it ironically, right? The, the, the prince rescuing the the princess the damsel in distress you know because that's sort of the thing you know you get the impression that at least at first uh, and again by design right at first when he sees this going on at the carnival he's like disturbed by it and it's almost like when he buys her he's rescuing her you know he's rescuing this sleeping beauty and she's going off now to to a better life he's going to to take care of her but then yes of course we see that you know he is a, a big old piece of shit and he reflects on it himself uh in sinbad he's a big old piece of shit too you know he's a bad captain and he puts a lot of people in danger and he gets a lot <laughs> yeah. of people killed he fucks a lot of shit up but there's no irony there, you yeah. know? He's just, he's the hero, and, and he's going to get his happy ending, and we should just, of course, like, fawn over this captain. And it's like, Harris is sort of like, yeah, but what if, like, Sinbad had the reflexivity to go, like, man, I really fucking blew it, didn't I? Like, I'm, I'm kind of a bad sailor and a bad captain, aren't I? You know, like, was any of this necessary? No, like, you know, I'm, I'm a piece of shit. I should just hang it up, you know? Like, that's what Sinbad's sort of lacking, I guess, that, that Harris is providing. I was thinking about that, too. That guy had no control over his crew. I mean, just no discipline at all. 
the it was a ragtag bunch. Well, they were all criminals the second time around. It That's was like true. a major yeah. Dundee situation. Yeah, yeah. thirty yeah. dozen, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. For sure. But that was clearly not a priority of his to wrangle those guys. You know, he was in hero mode. He thought he could handle all of it himself. But yeah, I mean, it, it is this very storybook look at it there's not a lot of personal reflection in the character of sinbad and marsh your film felt like an episode of tales of the crypt that like came straight out of hell (laughs) but it, it has that kind of that bent where it's there's the sleeping beauty angle in order to then explore the darkness inside this man, this personal reckoning of what the fuck am I doing? Cause he is just this freak that has this mansion where he's putting on, that's a guy. I was hoping you would have this like clear sided idea of what the heck was going on in this movie. Cause I was, I mean, I do to a certain extent. And, I mean, and, I, and I do too, right? I mean, I get that he's, it is this game that they're playing this like effort of control, but I guess to what ends was what I was lost on, but that also kind of has a fairy tale quality, right? Where it's just, they just feel this compulsion to do it because they have the power to do it. Yeah, and it's definitely a sexual fantasy, but I guess one thing that shocked me about the film is that there isn't really any explicit sexual content in maybe the way that you would expect, or especially if you're like, you know, Zalman King's later work as a director, like the Red Shoe Diaries. Uh, But... Yeah, like... It's leaning on the psycho in psychosexual. Yeah. Yeah, because it's also, like, performative, right? And there's this whole aspect of the film where Troy is functionally a film director or a circus director, right? Because there's all these elaborate things that happen, right? He has, you know, there's like the date sequence where he goes on with her to the jazz club and home and they and they dance like it's the prom or whatever. That's a very, very long sequence. Uh, there's the other stuff where th- when he wakes her up, they're watching Scarlet and uh, what's the Angelica? Angelica. Uh, the sort of like in-house maid slash lover uh, of Scarlet. Uh, they're doing dance routines as nuns like there's this whole like yeah. show aspect of it um as well in terms of it but yeah it, they, they don't like it's sort of hinted at scarlet is basically like if you leave here with her you think you're going to be able to get it up again like she doesn't say that but she does say that you know so yeah. like yeah there's something sexual about it but what's interesting is that you know harris kind of takes a little credit for eyes wide shut because of this movie and because well. Zalman King actually consulted on Eyes Wide Shut, so there's a whole full circle thing. Uh, but it's a film also about jealousy and what happens in these kinds of relationships, right? We saw a little bit of it with Cave, um, you know, and <laughs> we were talking about, like, here's a guy who's living this fantasy life. There's multiple lovers around. There's multiple girls he's bouncing around between. And this whole, yeah, what is his reality, right? He has no idea. They're just, like, lost in this in this game, you know? Well, I think it's very clear that you know like the the house you know slash castle slash mansion (laughs) whatever it is right that the the idea is that they have created for themselves a space of you know fairy tale logic you know that, that within the confines of this very controlled space they have 
they find this kind of liberation to to leave reality behind, to leave the real world behind, to to go wherever they want in time, uh, to go wherever they want in in terms of you know um, whatever kind of like moralistic structures they want to lampoon at that particular moment, you know, that in this in this house it is a fairy tale, you know, and outside is, is the real world. And so like you said, you know, even though we're jumping ahead a little bit, but but when, you know, he is sort of feeling like, you know, maybe I should get out of here, maybe I should go, we just sort of do get the sequence of them kind of like putzing around in the quote real world and it's just like dumpy strip malls and shitty gas yeah. stations and all that kind Eating of stuff. Eating a crappy hamburger. Yeah, like a, at a greasy spoon diner and, and he does kind of have this and, and she has it as well. We can pick that apart a little bit later. This kind of like yeah, why the fuck are we out here? Like this fucking sucks. Like, you know, like maybe we should go back to to this 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 place where we can be princes and princesses and 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 right. whatever else we want to but it's also another prison you know and that's yeah. like yeah that's his problem because he's also like it, it seems like if he was to ever like fall in love with anyone else besides scarlet scarlet would seduce <laughs> seduce them you know that's like the eyes wide shut aspect like he can't actually bear the fact that like his partner quote-unquote like has lesbian lovers like he can't, he actually can't handle it you know and i think that's part of it and he sees sleeping beauty that yeah he can free her but he can also free himself from this situation or that, so he thinks or so well yeah or so he thinks <laughs> but it's funny you mentioned that sequence where they go and come back andy because that is the uh, sort of two-part structure of Sinbad is a lot of uh, going and coming back. I was cracking up at just the, you know, again, as a vehicle for special effects, they're like, okay, we have the island of Colossa. They go there, they go to Baghdad, and then they go back to the island. Yeah. You know, it's a very uh, propulsive uh, narrative to just always keep it moving uh, back to the monsters, back and, to the effects. Yeah, I was gonna know? say, and again, like in the house, you know, for for Harryhausen uh, on that island, you can do whatever the hell you want. You know? yeah. it's, it's it's only Fantasy your rules. Island. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, although some of it does. Uh, wind up back in Baghdad yes. a little bit as well. The great but. dance of the snake woman. The dance of the snake woman. Oh which my god. In my memories, because like as I was like, you know, starting this movie over and, and things were coming back to me, I remember as a child this this dance of the snake woman. So Sakura, the the magician, he's gonna entertain the the caliph and the sultan with, you know, this dinner like Hey, show us some of your, you know, your wizardry. Show us, like, your cool shit. He's trying to impress everybody. And he, he takes uh, the princess's domestic, you know, her servant, and, and puts her in a big pot and then just throws a cobra in with her and then does, like, incantation. And then out, uh, like, I guess he smashes the pot, right? And then the woman has combined with this serpent and does this, you know, kind of erotic dance of, of the serpent woman and in my head I was like man I remember that being so fucking awesome and it's actually like one of like the, the shittiest effects 
Harryhausen pulls off. I mean, it is just, it's like something you would make in art class, like with some clay, like while you're yeah. screwing around with your friends. It's the mm-hmm. most celebrity death match of the, uh, <laughs> yeah. of the moments. Holy you know. shit. Yeah, that's so true. It, it was fine. I hadn't seen this movie before. It, I thought I might have, you know. It's definitely something that the images have been passed by my face enough times where I'm like, yeah, I've seen that movie. It's just so iconic. And it was funny then not knowing it had the like going to coming back, going again structure. Cause when they were done with the Cyclops at the beginning, my first reaction was, Oh, bummer. You know, that was so cool. (laughs) I I assumed he'd be around, you know, all the time. Uh, And then of course they go back to the Island of the Cyclops. The Valley of the Cyclops. The Valley, the Valley. Yeah. And it was it was funny watching it. It's such an impressive special effect, and those guys are so you know rough and unruly and just a, 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 a mean group of dudes uh, when they go to that <laughs> island. And I just kept feeling so bad the whole film. It never let up. I felt bad for the Cyclops. There was nothing inherently villainous about them. Because they just got their own setup, you know, they've got their gold, you know, they have their coffers, and we just got all these little pests, these human beings coming and just running into their cave, slicing at their ankles, sticking torches in their single eye. These guys are just trying to hang out. Of course, they're going to get mad and fight back and try to roast these dudes but i i was actually thinking i don't think there's anything inherently villainous by design with the cyclops it's just a given yeah the caliphate's doing imperialism but that's just normal in movies of the 20th century (laughs) you know like it's just like yeah look at these weirdos let's kill them and take their shit you know uh that's just a like a good value in in those days right yeah it just felt like invading nature you know they were their own giant special species Let, let them be observe Dude, that is really hammered home, though, when they later, when they come back to the island and they have to get, like, the the part of the egg from the birds. And when the baby hatches out of the eggshell, I hadn't seen this film either, and I was completely shocked when those guys just killed that baby bird and then just started roasting it like yeah. immediately quest for fire style and, and by baby bird we should well, also it's explain it. it's <laughs> like you know 18 feet tall i mean it's huge but it's got two like, heads yeah. it's a rock yeah. it's they a, like wouldn't a, fit in your garage you know <laughs> yeah but they do Let's explain they do explain <laughs> that at that point in the journey those guys are like starving to death yeah. they're so hungry and they just see like a a, a quick dinner here and and they're they they waste no time in roasting that chicken and dude it that is like the funniest looking chicken wing that they got on the spit that, yeah. Like, oh yeah huge, so good huge chicken <laughs> wing that those, yeah horrible disgusting sweaty guys are just immediately like like you know getting into but you know it's it's an interesting point that you bring up uh, about that and the creatures because i think you know if if we can you know, like psychoanalyze Ray Harryhausen a little bit, you know, like for him, that was the work, you know, was like building all these creatures throughout all of the, the movies he would make. And the level of, of, you know, I mean the, the, the dedication required to pull that shit off. I mean, I read researching the, the making of the movie 11 months just to create all the various like creature effects. And like 
what do you think the shoot was? It was probably like seven two, days. Yeah, it was like yeah. two and a half weeks or whatever. You know, what I mean? like, that's where the work was. And and for Harryhausen, like creating these creatures, that's his his life's work. You know, he's like building these these mythical beasts and creatures. And th- I think that there's so much love in him in building them that you you feel it over the movie as you're saying Ryan because like they're the stars they're they're yes i mean sure by some people's modern standards or whatever they're they're somewhat crude just because of technology and fucking computers ruining everything but like but like man like you look at those things and you're like this is awesome like that's awesome that he's manipulating these things and doing this frame by frame and like you know paying attention to small details on their bodies I mean, furry butt of the cyclops yeah, yeah you know yeah. like that's the best shit you just want to keep looking at them so you don't want to see them die because then they leave the screen you know they're gone like you want to see that thing stomping around and 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 doing its thing so so i i think there's something to it i think you're right yeah yeah i mean with the amount of love that went into creating those creatures you can't help but also be enraptured and not be cheering for their death because they're just so colorful. I agree. I never wanted them to go away. The film was worse off <laughs> whenever oh, they yeah. weren't on screen. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Which is, again, like a testament to this movie because, like, man, this is, what, like 80-some minutes, and and they do not waste a lot of time. I mean, this is, like, wham, bam. Yeah. Uh, every five minutes something is popping up, you know, they're, they're making sure that there's some, some twist, some turn, some creature, some, some thing that they have to a mutiny to face. Yeah. That, that you, you don't have to really suffer through too much of, of that stuff because yeah. that's not what this movie is, is about. You know what this movie is about besides special effects guys falling. And I know that we're all big fans of guys falling. There's gotta be, dozens of of epic falls in this movie guys falling off the ship guys falling everywhere oh yeah (laughs) very comically so you could have a good drinking game with this movie like drink every time some guy like falls screaming to his death like (laughs) yeah yeah. and a lot of clay men falling too which is nice celebrity deathmatch guys uh, in the distance i think my favorite thing about this movie is is not even the stop motion special effects in certain respects. I really love, and this movie made me realize that I love this. Is when, when <laughs> to make someone seem really small, they have to make a bunch of small stuff really big on mm-hmm. set, right? Which is kind of a convoluted way of getting to the point of. So Sinbad's wife, the the curse that's put upon her is she's turned really tiny his wife he gets a tiny wife she's you know probably (laughs) like six inches tall and he has to carry her around in this little almost like a little lantern case he's got a little carrying case for his tiny wife and there are a few scenes with the tiny wife and sometimes it's a optical effect where she's printed on the screen and she's made very small but of course when there's nice close-ups they instead then need to make all the set dressing around her 
like she's sitting on a plate of fruit and they have all those grapes and so they have to make giant grapes presumably out of rubber balloons or something like that and that's something i really love and haven't seen in a while because i liked honey i shrunk the kids a lot when I was a kid, and I oh, even yeah. recognized Shout out Stuart it Gordon, then. Friend of yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I've always loved that stuff. It's a fun effect to just imagine the set dressers and the production designer and everyone building the props having to make a bunch of giant grapes in order to make the lead actress look very small. That's what I thought about when I was growing up and I was really into to Willy Wonka. I was always like, look at that big ass chocolate bar. Like, yeah. that's an awesome prop, you mm-hmm. know? Like, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, this this is a movie that, I mean, for me, it's, it's, it's really a testament to a certain type of craftsmanship that, that yeah, some directors who clearly were heavily influenced by Harryhausen have, have tried to sort of maintain throughout the years. But, but really, I mean, like, yeah, to me, this, this movie like takes us back to this, like really pure time in cinema history of, of, you know, this, this kind of like attempt at a, at a, at a great leap forward in, in special effects that still required like so much like practicality and so many carpenters and laborers like working on these things. I mean, we've talked about it on the, the pod before, so I don't really want to go into a whole scree about it, but like, yeah, you know, in, in an era where, you know, almost everything now is, is done in after effects with computers, including just like squibs, you know, like bullet hits, you know, like, uh, almost everything is just computer, you know, painted in there it's it's so cool to still see the elements of this that you could reach out and touch these things you could feel them i mean even the creatures though they are put in there through like optical effects like there's body to them you know like Mm -hmm. they are still interacting with space in a in a certain respect i mean they're they're physical things and yes they might look crude by by today's standards if that's all you're using but like for me it's like it's it's magic and and it's not it's not fairy tale magic you know it's not this thing that we can't understand it's 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 magic of people and their hands and their bodies and their sweat you know building these things and touching these things and and that's a kind of magic that that I feel like is so sadly uh, lost in in today's cinema. Speaking of touching things, um, in terms of the bad, <laughs> well, in, ter- we well, in terms of uh, this is my segue, but yeah, in in terms of uh, that in in Sinbad, I think for me one of my favorite moments of of questionable acting was when Sinbad discovers his miniature wife. And the shot reverse shot, he looks positively giddy, like, like this is hot. Like that's sort of like <laughs> yeah. his initial reaction to her being completely miniaturized. So I just wrote like, seems pretty turned on by his miniature wife. He does. <laughs> yeah, he my does. note says Sinbad quietly cracking a smile at tiny wife. That actor felt like a goddamn fool talking to his tiny wife. And I couldn't tell if it was just a slip of the performance or if he was doing something a little salacious. The world has grown very large overnight. It's true. It is you, my darling. My daughter. Where is she? Where is my... 
What evil sorcery is this? Like, he's like, oh, this is a problem, and we're going to need to get this fixed, but come on, honey, this is pretty funny. No? Yeah. Donnie, what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Zalman King moment. You know? I go to Molly, and I'm like, "You want? do you ever want to be tiny sometimes? You think that might be fun? Be like tiny wife for a couple days? And she, she liked the idea. <laughs> I think we'd all like to be tiny sometimes, you know? You know, respect to Sinbad, too, though, because as you pointed out, like, once he sort of discovers that she's small, and he's kind of like, okay, we, we, we got to you know, bring her along on this journey, you know, and he's got to build a contraption. As you, you mentioned this like small box, he does say like, send someone to the jewelers and have them make something. So he spares no expense. I mean, that thing looks expensive, you know, like if you saw that on a shelf somewhere, you'd be like, wow, that is, that's gotta be worth some money. So talk about like artisan craftsmanship with their hands. Yeah. It was a nice little tiny stuffing her in like a cigar box or anything like that. <laughs> what was your segue, Marsh? You said that was going to be. A- well, I was just saying that that was sort of Sinbad's you know, Robert Troy Zalman oh, King moment. Yeah. You know, looking at this is the fairy tale woman. You know, sort of getting turned on by it. Uh, Robert can't actually like he doesn't. Well, they they do eventually sleep together the night of of the big date, but uh, otherwise it's just this like paranoid, chast relationship about looking. I mean, most. Yeah. Most of the film is really just people staring at each other in unsettling ways. And I do want to bring up the visual style, which I think is really, really interesting. It it is a lot of sort of longer takes, a lot of static shots, a lot of looking. I mean, there's barely anything said in this film. It is really this kind of piece of music in a way. And I I do think the score is really good in, in how it fits the camera movements. Um, and I want to bring up what, of course, Rosenbaum talked about is its sort of connection to jazz, you know? The, the character, of course, is a jazz musician, and that was an invention of Harris, uh, who was a sort of musician himself. Uh, but the idea that, like, yeah, this film is theme and variation, like, you know, there's not really a plot per se. Yes, Sleeping Beauty wakes up, but he's probing all these different things. And it also includes uh, these sort of improvised asides featuring a not famous and very high Richard Pryor as the friend of Troy who hangs out at the jazz club. Yeah. Everywhere we work, I'm going in the bathroom, man, because everybody pits. I can't. I was up here 15 minutes talking about, <laughs> ain't nothing happening. I only got to hurt. And we gotta what put, did you, you guys gotta put, think of that? You got to put friend in quotation marks, I think, on that. Yeah. <laughs> you think he's a fake friend, Troy? Well, yeah. uh, Troy was one of the only people that goes to his funeral. Not to just spoil that Pryor dies, but I think he was his actual friend in the context I mean, of the film. I think there's still, for me, there was like a hint of something nefarious in their relationship. Because I'll be honest with you, you know, you, you've been referring to him as a jazz musician. And I know that's what it, it, it claims, but but I started to go like, is this also part of the fantasy? Right? Like, is because like, yeah, is the, he like the paying club, to be there? 
<laughs> right. Because like, yes, we do get a couple scenes of like him at this like jazz club, but like it's basically like empty. Well, I you think know? it was arranged for Sleeping Beauty for it to be empty. That was a special performance just for the date. Gotcha. I thought I remember another performance too, where it just seemed like he was just like playing sax and everybody was just kind of like fawning over him playing sax you know but then it was just like a dead crowd like no one was really there and just Richard Pryor like hanging out in the men's room or whatever high as shit you know like there was something I kept trying to like sort of read into it all and and maybe I'm reading too much into it but again I was sort of like if everything about this guy is this weird like power play and fantasy shit and building himself up like maybe this is all bullshit too you know maybe 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 he's just like fake playing that sax up there, you know, and everybody's like, damn, you're awesome, bro. You know, and like, yeah, it's all part of the. It does beg the question because the lady later orders one of the waitresses at the jazz club to do a cheerleader, uh, naked cheerleader cheer. Um, yeah. To which he it, it does not react well. <laughs> no. So, he's yeah, just, he's yeah. just looking to feel something, I guess. I, I think his relationship with Richard Pryor is definitely as hazy as the movie looks, you know, <laughs> that like smeared light throughout all of it. You could probably project whatever you want on it. I feel like I did not walk away with evidence necessarily contrary to him being his one tr true friend. <laughs> but I also think that there's not a lot that we get to really know about the two of them. I hadn't realized the timeline didn't click for me that Richard Pryor was not famous at all, really, at this point in 1973. Because that's interesting then, too. Because forgetting that while watching, I thought, oh, Pryor, of course, he's like bringing a certain level of recognition and energy into this movie. It's even more interesting than in hindsight that that's not a part of the calculation here that he's just he was cast to do this he's just a guy yeah and in fact he was brought in because Zalman King was friends with him in New York like it, he wasn't even cast it was like Zalman King was like you know what this this movie needs my friend Richard Pryor <laughs> wow yeah I guess that makes more sense now you know so yeah, yeah maybe I IRL good friends but yeah the way it came off in the movie no was... it's very weird I agree there is a tension there but he's like he's giving him pills at the beginning but right it is again like is anyone in this film a fucking human you know that's a that's a question that's a good question yeah in and of itself <laughs> to that sort of fairy tale point I do want to I want to bring up what Rosenbaum wrote after he saw it at Cannes, because it's a, it's a good little bit. He says, uh, to call the, f the flagrantly unrealistic film, quote, an old-fashioned movie with stunt sex superimposed, or something, quote, only dirty middle-aged men of a certain generation could even begin to understand, unquote, as Molly Haskell and Andrew Saris have done respectively, it is to misread it entirely. Harris is concerned with the internal processes and consequences of dreaming more than its objects. With no sex or nudity on the screen, what are we supposed to be ogling? And taking the ritualistic erotic charades literally is a bit like regarding Plato's parable of the cave as a treatise on spelunking. 
if traditions are to be invoked, the theme is not very different from that of Four Nights of a Dreamer, and the ending, as conceived and shot, has much in common with that of Lola Montez. But Harris makes the romantic sensibility look a lot more disturbing than either Brisson or Ophel's by detaching the dreams from any humanistic reference. The eye is much colder. Wow. So. I mean, he's he's spot on with that. <laughs> you know, these people are like, I guess, dreaming for the sake of dreaming because there's no, like, their ultimate goal is to try to, if you want to take it this direction, to try to make the world as it is in dreams. You know, like that's the project if they're trying to build anything in this place, you know, they're not necessarily just trying to pretend that they're running a boarding school or whatever. They're, they're, they're doing a lot more than that. They're, they're trying, yeah, to, to, to sort of like create a place where time doesn't exist, you know, and you see that in, in strange rituals, um, the one that I was like, you know, gobsmacked by a little bit was, you know, you mentioned this earlier, but, um, there is this, the, the, the dance of the nuns. So at a certain point, you know, Troy and, you know, the sleeping beauty are, are, um, allowed to sort of like, you know, sit there and watch this, this dance of the nuns that begins. And, you know, at a certain point, it shifts to like a tango and it starts to get a lot more sultry and sexually charged and he kind of gets uncomfortable so he like gets up and like yanks the cord out of the jukebox you know he's like all right that's enough you know and he and he's like i'm taking you to bed and he takes sleeping beauty off to bed because i guess he doesn't want her to you know out of jealousy or whatever perhaps be be too turned on by it so like he goes off with her and he's away for quite a while like putting her to bed and they're talking there's all this stuff going on and then she goes to sleep and he goes back downstairs and when he opens up the curtain the two women are frozen in the exact position they were when he unplugged the jukebox as if they were like these mechanical dolls they chose to just stay there frozen in silence in that position, right? Like they are playing a game in which they're freezing themselves in time. I mean, it's like, it's just, it's so bizarre. It's so again, right. It isn't just, we're doing this sexy nun dance, but we're also <laughs> connecting ourselves to the music and to the performance in this particular moment. We aren't humans. We are like, marionettes on a certain level yeah yeah and that's like you know the whole film is really centered around that jukebox right and the different songs that are played that invoke these different feelings you know because yeah that's even sort of like troy's kind of internal struggle with the whole thing is that it is too like yeah like that just that whole date, because that's like 15 minutes of the movie when he like takes her to the club yeah. and then they go back and he's in like the ice cream suit, you know, and she's dressed in, in all white and they're dancing to Nat King Cole. Like, again, it does feel like, yeah, they are playing these. Yeah, these were these they are marionettes, right, in a sense, acting out this fantasy. 
but it's, it's just the facsimile of a date. It's yeah. not an actual date. No, you know. And here's my question no. too. I feel like I either miss something or it's again purposely vague, which is what much of this film is. But it's interesting that his it's not a kiss that even wakes up Sleeping Beauty. No. It seems like he wakes her up just by staring at her. Or or feeding her less sleeping juice that we don't see. But that's no, it's true. Un, it's unclear like what the plan or process was for waking her up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is also kind of explained by the guy who sells Sleeping Beauty that like as long as she gets her medication. She'll sleep nice and pretty. <laughs> he yeah. this, like, this bottle of liquid. He's like, as long as you keep giving her this, she'll stay asleep forever. You I guess know? Yeah, that's true. He 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 stops giving her, yes, the 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 night night juice as mm-hmm. Marsh described. And then yeah, she just wakes up, you know, very refreshed, ready to go, ready to <laughs> ready to go on some dates, ready to yeah, and that's because, yeah, even on the date is when she uh, tells about her her eight-year slumber, which is an extremely haunting monologue about the sort of, like, what it felt in the darkness yeah. of that sleep and the kisses. I don't remember when I fell asleep, but it couldn't have been too long after when I had a dream. It was more like a nightmare. A man... Someone I'd never seen before was kissing me. I don't know how he got there or anything, but he, he was kissing me and I couldn't seem to do anything to stop him. Then he would stop and go away. And there'd be nothing. For a long time, there'd be nothing. Then it would start again. Only in this dream, lots of strange men would kiss me and touch me. And I couldn't stop them. And it would stop and nothing. The nothing would last a long time. I couldn't tell if the nothing was a dream too, but but eventually it became more of a nightmare than the other. Just waiting and waiting for that to start again. And it always did. You know, oh boy. So again, yeah, this film makes you feel dirty about like entertainment and fantasy in general, I think, is yeah, part, I mean, is part uh, of what's going on. I was just going to say everything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I keep thinking about that Carney being like, as long as she's asleep, I'm gainfully employed. Yes. You know, and I'm like, yes. oh, fuck, that is, that's scary. And that yes. applies to everything. <laughs> Not even yeah. just this. <laughs> dark Ooh, Sinbad. Dark, yeah, very Sinbad da- yeah, was so- <laughs> also gainfully employed. You know, he didn't even need the riches from the cave that Sakura was hiding. Um, we no. should we should talk about. You know, we've talked about the monsters. We've talked about all kinds of, of people. But you know who we haven't talked about? The genie boy. Yeah, the little genie oh, boy. Yeah, I mean, I know yeah. I, that was something I was very curious to hear about because, as we've mentioned on this pod before, Ryan is a sort of aficionado of, of of strange child actor performances <laughs> and movies and and I gotta say I, I'm predicting that this one ranks up there for you in in terms of making you feel sort of unsettled by what's going on here so oh what's really your, uh, my, what's your yeah. rating of of uh Barani I think is his Barani. name the, the little the little genie boy that kid rocks <laughs> Molly and I loved Barani. Favorite part of the movie. I mean, I did say I liked the giant grapes and the the sets. Those are my favorite 
sets of the movie, my favorite character of the movie was Barani. Just this little boy stuck in a genie's lamp who just really wants to sail the seven seas with Sinbad and wants mm-hmm. to give him a nice time and serve and just live a life of adventure. And that to him, that's freedom. I love that actor. I thought he was so funny. <laughs> he, he's just like this proper little genie. When he he has that one line where he's like, "I'm a slave," you know. Like, <laughs> yeah. The most comfortable prison is still a lonely place. But aren't you sometimes called to our world to work your wonders? But then I'm summoned as a slave to do the bidding of whoever holds the lamp. I long to be free. To be an adventure to sail the seas as Captain Sinbad does. But those are dreams for real boys. And not for a genie. Clearly has like different reactions to like his handlers, you know, because he's invoked like three times. And I think it's probably like the magician who he's just like, oh. Yeah, uh, this right. fucking guy. You know, like yeah, yeah, yeah. He he was cracking me up at how much he was like oppressed by being this genie. And if you think about it, really, it's his film because he's the one who undergoes like a change and transformation. Sinbad, yeah. not a chance. Like that guy's going to continue pillaging as long as they can fund these films. Yeah. You know, totally. I love that special quality of 1950s child actors because they sound like grown men in certain respects. That's how they're yes. coached by their voice coaches to, to speak. And I thought Barani had that perfect balance of being a charming little genie and also developing an uncanny sensation that he's, he is like a thousand years old, a grown man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, none of these people deserved him. I will no, say that, yeah. you know, because he really is the the superstar he's he's bailing everybody out whenever they get into a tight spot certainly more so than sinbad who again i will stress creates every single tight spot that everyone gets in throughout the film uh these are all sinbad's bad choices you know you can blame sakura the evil magician but like i'm gonna be honest with you sinbad is a fucking moron the, the caliph is a fucking moron. They're all so fucking stupid, right? I mean, Sakura is the most villainous presence you've ever seen. I mean, this 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 magician, uh, bald, looking like Telly Savalas, wearing all black, constantly sort of doing this thing where he's just sort of like, <laughs> like, in their faces, <laughs> right to them, you know? <laughs> And, like, his cons, his fucking schemes, like, anybody, again, a child could see through them. I was just, like, dying because, like, again, as we've mentioned, like, Sakura is, like, he wants the lamp because, you know, he's an evil fucking guy. He wants the lamp. Sinbad is, like, who cares? Why do we need this lamp? Like, fuck the lamp. I'm going to get married and we're averting war, you know? Um, So Sakura, like, creates the problem. Sakura once they get back to Baghdad, is just like immediately pestering everybody. I mean, on the boat to Baghdad, Sakura's like, yo, let's turn around. I want that fucking lamp. Here, here's a bunch of jewels, right? And they're like, no, 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 no. We're not going to do this. When they get back to Baghdad, Sakura's like, all right, I'm going to try something else here. Um, I drew up on a cocktail napkin plans for a big crossbow. You want this? If, if you take this, will you 
go help me get the lamp. Like, this will be really great for you. It's a good weapon of war. And they're like, nah, I don't know about the crossbow. So he's like, all right, I'm going to figure this shit out. All right, here. Uh, uh, I'll plan this big magic show. And at the magic show, suddenly Sakura is like, watch this. I can read the future. And they're all like, oh, wizard, show us the future. And he's just like, oh, everything's going to be shit. There's going to be war. These kingdoms are going to collapse. Oh, my gosh. Unless you guys help me get the lamp. And they're all like, oh, geez, we got to help this guy get the lamp. Otherwise, he told us the future. Like our fucking kingdoms are going to collapse. So they're like, well, we got to. We got to know. But again, Sinbad's like, I'm not totally convinced. Right. And then, yes, the next morning they discover the princess has been shrunk to, as you've described, like six inches. Yeah. And no one, no one's reaction is that fucking evil wizard did this shit. Right. Like the guy yeah. who keeps no pestering one connects us it. to go back for the lamp. The caliph is just like, your kingdom did this. I blame you. Like, wouldn't those two guys just be like. Let's put two and two together here, right? This this fucking bald guy keeps pestering us to go back for the lamp. We said no. Then he read the future and said, the kingdoms are going to collapse if we don't get the lamp. We said no again. And now the princess is fucking six inches tall. What the hell is... It's this guy. Fucking chop his head off. You know? I know. Those guys in charge were so funny. I loved when, you know, Sinbad's like, we probably, you know, we shouldn't go back to that that island to get this lamp it's really dangerous there there's these horrible horrible cyclops monsters and the caliphs just he says i mean i i i i i can't judge i've never seen such things like yeah. i got no idea man and he's I like well there, i'm telling bro. you like, cyclops <laughs> dangerous cyclops big scary guys yeah. yeah those those guys are so funny when they're when they demand of him like immediately like oh look into the future of our two countries uh, just let us know so we can make our decisions much easier. Yeah. <laughs> like we need your you help. See? Oh yeah. And then again, as you've already <laughs> mentioned, right? So Sinbad's great plan the next day when they're like, all right, we got to go back for the mission is like, well, I got to get a crew. We got to go to the Island. And, and they're like, well, who are you going to bring with you? And he's like, well, my guys are probably not going to go. Cause that sucks. You know, you know what? I got an idea. I'm going to go to the, the, the Caliph's executioner and I'm going to get all these condemned guys, guys who you got to assume have done some pretty, pretty awful crimes to, to be, you know, threatened with beheading and Sinbad, like, press gangs them in. And I'm pretty sure Sinbad's like second in command, Harufa, poor fucking Harufa. Nobody got it worse than Harufa throughout the whole movie. But Harufa's like, you know, I think this is not a good idea. And Sinbad's like, come on, it can't be that bad. Like, you know, they'll, they'll come on the mission with us because they're going to get a pardon. And then immediately they're on the boat. And these guys, the the convicts, are just like, so we're going to mutiny, right? We're going to mutiny, like, pretty much. Immediately. Like, yeah, I mean, there's no hesitation. These guys are like, we're going to kill these guys and take the boat over, right? You know, it's like yeah. fucking Sinbad. He's playing with grapes inside his cabin while the entire crew is, like, mutinying. Yeah, and, and respect to Sakura in this moment because Sakura knows we got to get to the fucking island. And I need this boat. Sakura overhears them because, again, no one does any of their plans in secret throughout the entire movie. And Sakura overhears them and he goes to Sinbad and is like, Sinbad, these guys are going to fucking mutiny. They're going to kill us all. And they're going to take the boat. And Sinbad, again, what a great captain. He's just like, Sakura, the swords are all locked away. They're not going to fucking, they're not going to mutiny. Cut to these guys running around with swords, mutinying, and like doing everything that Sakura, I mean, like, 
Sinbad is really a worse human being, I think, than Troy on a certain level. You know, the amount of people he got and he gets killed. bailed out by the fucking demons, you know? Yeah. Like, he didn't even stop the mutiny. No. Mm-mm. Typical. Mm-mm. It's nice to see a, a, a hero in a Hollywood film praise Allah in the opening scene, though. You don't really get that anymore. You <laughs> no, know? Like, dude. very earnestly. I mean, again, again, right? It's like, it is... It is quaint now, and we certainly can point to like classic Hollywood's like tendency to 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 go pretty ham on Orientalism, and that's yeah. certainly on display here. But you know, you do raise a good point. It's like this is a time when, like, in this movie at at, at least, and I guess in some other movies where you did have like Muslim representation in like mainstream Hollywood, and you're encouraging your audiences who are in America at the time predominantly like Christian. To, to like hear guys, yes, talking about Allah and talking about like the Muslim religion. And like, again, it's filtered through Hollywood, but like, <laughs> come on, we'd have to wait until John McTiernan would bring it all back with the 13th oh Warrior <laughs> and Antonio Banderas playing, <laughs> playing a great Muslim hero. Yep, it killed Omar Sharif's enthusiasm for cinema. Yeah. <laughs> Thinking about all those guys on the ship, too, there's that great scene when they're at the Screaming Rock, and it, it, it's this big storm, and they're all, like, plugging their ears because the shrieking is so loud. That storm is an all-time guys just off screen throwing buckets of water yeah. at the actors. I called it out straight up. Yeah. Just, yeah. just like perfect yeah. bucket throws every angle. 10 seconds. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so awesome. What's amazing though is like they do have like a crazy like rain machine going, yeah. but then yes, it's punctuated by just like these clear just streams of water hitting like a single guy in the face, you know? <laughs> like, yeah they blew all their money on harry house and you know he was the he was he was appropriating all the funds for like the real cool shit in this movie there's no doubt about that yeah there is some very lackluster hand-to-hand combat as well they skimped on the on the training for those guys oh yeah some very slow <laughs> haymakers that, that oh, yeah. get thrown around in this movie of all the creatures which were your favorites in the movie? Because we have well, we haven't Cyclops. brought up the skeleton yet, which I know is a lot of people's favorite, and, and and especially like I guess the original sort of conception of this film was simply Harryhausen being like, "It's time to do the skeleton," you know, like <laughs> he like he had been like thinking about animating a skeleton for like a really long time, so it was like. That to him was was very meaningful, and uh, apparently it's meaningful to a lot of other people. I, I did really like it, though. That is a very fun sequence. The skeleton fight rocks. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Very cool. Probably the skeleton for me, too, even. I mean, that, in theory, is so fun. The idea of getting in a sword fight with the skeleton, and I like the music that plays over it, where it sounds like a bunch of bones clanging together yeah bernard herman shout out dude absolutely i mean this movie is made by two things really you know although there's other pleasures but really it is the rousing score of bernard herman and the work of harry uh ray harryhausen like that's that's the essence of it and it would become like a, a a big partnership between the two of them i think herman did the music for almost all of harryhausen's Uh, movies after. 
violence as well. And yeah, that that moment with the skeleton fight, like, that shows you like a guy that is fully fucking invested in what he's doing in, in Herman. Like, you know, yes, now we have a skeleton fight. So here's here come the xylophones. You know, here come the castanets. Right? These these very like you know bone like percussion instruments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really like that a lot. You know, one fun thing I learned from uh, there's a great nice big uh, interview with Harris and film comment that Nick Pinkerton did and asked him about the music and it was his brother and uh, this other guy uh, Robert ha- Richard Hazard uh, and Harris is very clever you know he produced this movie and he was saying that they didn't have enough money to hire a top tier composer and so he hired Hazard who was the arranger for Lalo Schifrin. So he was like, I basically got Lalo Schifrin, just his second, you know, his like lieutenant, you know? So like I couldn't afford the top guy, so I just, I stole him and and got him to do a Lalo Schifrin-esque score for the movie. So I was like impressed with the, the independent guile of of his producing skills. Like knowing like this guy, you know, that'll do it for nothing or whatever. In the world of uh, spaghetti westerns in Italy, that would be the the Bruno Nicolai. He was uh, Ennio Morricone's like right hand man, and yeah. and if it was a a lesser prestige spaghetti, yeah. you could be sure you'd have Bruno Nicolai on there yeah. doing his best. You're getting traces Morricone. of Morricone. Exactly, yeah, that's cool. That's enterprising is what that is. Because what was the budget on a movie like this? I mean... I don't... I, yeah, I didn't get a hard number, but he said, yeah, no studio was involved in the sure. making of this film. He raised it all through private money, but he also made a point that this was the capital gains and tax write-off era, which ended in 1976. So... It's, you know, you invest in a film. If you don't make your money back, at least it's 100% write-offable or whatever, sure. you know? So that was basically the arrangement. I mean, I would guess a, a million or two, maybe. I don't know. I mean, it's like, it's. I feel like the budget went into that house and the props yeah. in the house. I mean, that's, that's yeah. basically it. Because the production design... In that house is it's uh, crazy. It's 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 nuts. It's so elaborate, you know. It was taking me back to the. I mean, I mentioned it earlier, the rope grade, but it was taking me back to playing with fire, like the the same kind of idea inside this like impossible space that I still couldn't quite conceive. Like I didn't know how big this place was i mean it it just it's big it's very big it's very big a lot of sort of kubrickian wide shots cavernous wide shots yeah. you know and like the design would change as well at yes. various points so like i kind of like later on in the film when they like went back i almost felt like he took her to like a totally different space it took i thought me a while. so too for a second yeah it took me a while to realize like oh no it's the it's the same house they've just changed the decor to make it look yeah. now like a convent instead of a boarding school. Yeah, it really was this this fucked up fun house. Yeah. Where everything felt like it was expensive and arranged with such care and purpose, but because it was impossible to understand the psychosis behind designing a home that way it made it that much more scarier it, I, I think about how haunting those spaces were and then i think about troy pushing the sleeping beauty around in his wheelchair saying 
that line, you know. It was fantastic. I've never seen an act like that before, have you? No. They had to go on the Ed Sullivan show. They'd be terrific. And you know what? What? They could even be billed as a sister act. You know what I mean, Jelly Bean? I understand. Rubber band. You know, I was like, oh, God, get me out of here. Yeah. <laughs> I've yeah. got chills. <laughs> Yeah, as he pushes her into like the cargo elevator in this fucking space. <laughs> yeah. Like, what the hell, dude? Yeah. A real fucked up movie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it really does evoke uh, the dark early 70s. You know, this seems, again, we've talked about that sometimes, something beamed from that era. This is something that only belongs in 1973. <laughs> yes. Yes. No doubt about that. No doubt about that. I mean, like, this movie, I, I really, I struggled to connect, you know, to what was going on. And then I did connect to what I felt was going on. And then I felt uh, somehow more disturbed, you know. I, I think I was less disturbed when I was confused. And then when I started to really kind of put everything <laughs> together. Uh, and I think, again, it's, it's like by design, you know, because... The film builds at first with this idea that, again, as I mentioned earlier, like she's been rescued and she's got her prince charming and and this is the fairy tale thing that he's playing with. And then as the film goes, it, it, it gradually turns on its head. And it's almost to me as if Harris is sort of saying to us, again, in a very like early 70s revisionist way, like you people are all so fucking stupid for believing in fairy tales, you Disney-fed fucking assholes or whatever, you know? I mean, it's a very, like, early 70s message, you know? And it's not as confrontational as I think I put it, but but it certainly is, I think, extremely uh, provocative. And I can see why today, you know, when I was reading about it, I saw some extremely sort of divisive reads of this film, you know? And I think, honestly, it could go either way, depending on who views this film, you know? Where you can kind of, like, see the critique, or you can not get past the sort of, like, yes, white male privilege of it all, of of this guy, um, and... Again, his hair. His, his hair, yeah, yeah. Because, uh, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, there's a lot of things in there that that are are pretty gross. Um, and, again, I think I'm I'm leaning with you towards the, the yeah, Harris is, is trying to, to, as characters say throughout the film, like, hold a mirror up. And, and the one thing audiences hate more than anything is watching a movie and, and seeing their ugly selves, like, staring back at them, their worst, darkest, deepest, fucking gross parts of their soul, like, clawing out of the screen at them. And, yeah, I think this film certainly does that. Yeah, because it ends with, uh, you know, the rabble kissing her on the mouth for a dollar again as uh, Troy has, is now the carnival barker in the doctor's suit in the in the fairgrounds. Yeah. The, big <laughs> 70s bummer. Yeah, big 70s <laughs> bummer, dude. That got me thinking about what type of energy it takes to be a carny because I never thought that Troy really gave off the vibe that he could be someone who could work up such a theatrical presence 
at a carnival? Because you really got to be a... Man, I don't know. You just have to have some kind of sick fire in you. Well, he has a lot of experience, like, role-playing and dressing up. That's very true. You know, I sort of saw it again, yeah, like... I, I. I don't know what it means, but it occurred to me, like in that finale, like Andy's thought about the jazz club earlier. It's like, is, is this another role play, <laughs> you know, uh, in by other means or not, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's all, yeah. It all ends as it began a charade, a very ugly charade. I bet Richard Pryor didn't even die in the movie. I bet that was also a charade, you know? Like, he's just kind of like, they got bored and they were like, what if we did a funeral? Would you be willing to lay in the box for a little bit, you know? And I can like mourn you for a little while? Like, it's very possible. <laughs> I was, I was second guessing everything I saw. Yeah. But it is, yeah, it is that type of, of film that exists in a space where you can't quite grasp it you know like uh and what's funny too is that you know again if you're if you're thinking about that same kind of idea with sinbad you know for as dated as the effects certainly might be and as as dated as as you know the 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 film stock would 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 make the film it's like man sinbad is cinematically speaking like still well and alive today. I mean, it is not like rooted in 1958. I mean, again, you consider all the filmmakers who were influenced by Ray Harryhausen, particularly, but this film as well, you know, guys like James Cameron, another dude who sort of started in special effects and then was like, yeah, the effects, that's, that's the show, right? That's why we're here, you know, dream big when you're making these movies. Spielberg, you know, this movie, I really started to understand like Spielberg and Indiana Jones, because like this is basically an Indiana Jones movie. You've got the 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 mythical objects, you know, that people are pining after. You have again that Spielberg and Lucas bullshit of just being yeah. like, well, we just do the hero's journey, you know? You go, you go to the place, you get out, then you go back, and then you run away, and everyone's chasing you as you're leaving, you know, that whole that whole shtick there. But like, yeah, the the happy ending, the 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 good guys triumphing everybody getting what they want the 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 sort of pathetic romance stuffed in there as well i mean like people are just still still basically remaking this movie over and over again yep and uh, some call it loving is uh, you know one of those films like we've talked about on the podcast before it had no sequels except perhaps of course according to Harris eyes wide shut uh, which is uh, yeah a, you know all related and so yeah another 70s uh, you know uh, detour in the art of Amer of American cinema <laughs> that uh, did always not, good to be back. <laughs> it did not cause anyone to start industrial light and magic. No. No, it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know what was cool too? I don't know if you guys read this, but you know, I was just like trying to read more about like Harry Housen's techniques. And I think the coolest one that I came across, the dragon at the ending you know, when they go to Sakura's lair and, and he's got this dragon in there um, and the dragon breathes fire. I don't know if you guys read about how Harry Housen pulled that off, but um, 
in order to create the the flame effect of like the dragon actually breathing fire, uh, Ray Harryhausen got a like a U.S. military flamethrower because he had been in the the military during World War II, like a lot of other Hollywood guys, you know, working in like the Signal Corps and shit like that. He worked under Frank Capra during the the war. So I'm sure he went to his army buddies and was like, can I borrow a flamethrower? Or they probably just had them laying around Hollywood at the time. But he got a flamethrower and like against a black backdrop, he was like shooting a flamethrower and like filmed himself doing that. And then they took that, the like the burst from the flamethrower and superimposed that with his, you know, stop motion dragon, which I just think is fucking badass. That dude. rocks. That also reminds me, uh, one yeah, one last anecdote here, uh, but it all comes back to this. You know how James B. Harris met Stanley Kubrick was uh, he got drafted into the army during Korea, and he was a combat photographer. Shout out to Sean Dorfer, who we recently talked about, uh, and he befriended this guy, another combat photographer who was best friends with. Stanley Kubrick. So, uh, oh, I know this guy also interested in film, you know? Uh, so it all goes back to the combat photography once again. Hell yeah, dude. Good for them. And they survived. Yes. Yeah. To go yeah. make this fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. So they could kiss Tisa Farrow on the lips. You know? well, I guess I don't really have like a synthesis of what these, this double feature did to my brain. Uh, when we like went to fairy tale land, but it was a night I'll never forget watching these two movies back to back. It's certainly a magical space that reminded me of both of you, and I guess that was what I was hoping for with the prompt. You know, give me your both of your interpretations of a fairy tale, and I felt the stamp from from my two gauntlet boys on yes. both of these pictures. Well, I'm glad. You know, are there uh, are there fairy tales that that you like? Ryan, what are what are some of your classics? Well, oh, I guess I don't have any classics. The one that I watched two or three days ago in prep for this episode is amazing. It's just a five-bagger. I've been recently obsessed with the cinema of Jao Cesar Montero, the great like Lisbon filmmaker who's been introduced to me by uh, my good friend Nabil, who I've talked about on the pod. And this guy's cinema has been become a total obsession for me. I've found every feature of his I've seen so far to like be a masterpiece. I think he is a prankster, a weirdo, and he makes films that are both... He has like a whole branch of his filmography that is just about himself being this kind of sexual deviant, and they feel like Philip Roth novels. They're amazing films. And then he also has the front half of his career where he worked in various different styles that are some of the most beautiful and opulent and stunning films I've ever seen. And he did make a fairy tale of sorts called Sylvester from 1981, and it's a mixture of Bluebeard and a few other Portuguese fairy tales and fables. And honestly, there's no point in describing the plot of it because it's like so secondary, even though it's just straightforward and that's all you really expected to deal with on a beat for beat story level in it. It's all just kind of like classical, but there's just something about his design and the way he directs all the actors. There's a mixture both of real locations that 
are very colorful and have these interesting filters and then also studio sets that range from things that look realistic to things that are just paper mache and it's kind of hopping around between all of this at various points and all the while the costumes look great it feels as if it's from another time right and it's just it's a stunning film it's a must-see sylvester from the, my new favorite cinematic prankster jalcicer montero uh, so I would recommend that. That was like a grade A fairy tale. Very nice. Yeah. Um, so then next week, Marsh, it's yeah. you. Yeah. Lay it on me. Well, yeah. You know, um, I watched a couple films this past week that sort of led me to this topic. And, and I hope it's not too close to just what we did because there's sort of a, a slight overlap. But in the last week, I watched uh, Mad Fate, the new Soi Chang film with Gordon Lamb as a deranged fortune teller uh, who may or may not keep getting people killed because of his fortunes uh and then i also watched uh the spiritualist aka the amazing mr x uh from the late 1940s a noir film about a sort of con man spiritualist and there's a lot of great stuff in there and and i was reflecting on the fact that i had sort of seen two films this week that played with the ideas of fate and fortune and so i want you guys to bring me uh and, and i we can keep it broad you know bring me your your oracles your fortune tellers your prophecies um you know, your Sibyls, your Augers, right? You know, your anything that is sort of dealing with, yeah, fate, fortune, the future, that kind of thing, right? Does that make sense? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> it is written, it will come to pass. That's right. <laughs> Saunders Stradamus, thank you. Yes. Uh, as always, you can follow us, listen to us, on SoundCloud and Apple, Spotify, other places. And you can send emails to Marsh's Mailbag at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. This young man fancies himself a Prince Charming. He feels that he can make it where medical science has failed. He thinks that he can wake this young lady with a kiss. Can he do it or can't? If he can. Maybe you can, it'll cost you a dollar, just one dollar to find out. Just a minute, my friend. A word of warning. When you wake a sleeping beauty, you run the risk of being awakened yourself. Oh, too bad. Okay, who's next? Who's going to be the next to try their luck? Here he is. Let him move. Everybody get the lady in white. The nurse. You call for Brani? I'm here. Why, it's the genie. <laughs> no longer the genie, Captain. But your cabin boy. You must prepare my cabin for a feast of celebration. I already have, Captain. I already have. See for yourself. Why, it's the treasure of the Cyclops. (laughs) I put it on board for you. A sort of a wedding present. Well done, Barani. I know you will be as good a sailor as you were a genie. I shall try, Captain. I shall try.